Hegel thinks that's how we have to think about the world because that's the way everything is real. It comes back to what you said in the beginning about relation, right? Like everything mm -hmm. is in relation. So to, to just choose, we can even take a dicey example today, right? Like Ukraine had to be invadable by Russia in order for that to happen. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be collectively outraged or every, every, whatever, mm -hmm. but it had to. And the same thing with Taiwan right now. Taiwan has to be invadable by China or it couldn't happen. Right. Well, listen, but now that we're talking about politics, yeah. I'm going to like, I'm going to, we're going to keep recording, but I'm going to end. This is at 44, 45 minutes. This part is over and we'll go for a little bit longer. And for the patrons only, I want to talk to you about okay. political things uh, and maybe they'll relate. Uh, hopefully we'll find a way to relate them to what we've come to in our philosophical conversation, but okay. who knows? The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life. Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into? The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs, we don't we see... We still, to a large extent, live in the interregnum between between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Diet Soap is a Sublation Media podcast. All right, so Todd McGowan is uh, an author with Sublation Press. We have a book coming out uh, called Enjoyment Right and Left. I always want to get like I know it's either enjoyment it. or enjoyment, but I think it is enjoyment. I think that's what we <laughs> enjoyment, right and left. Um, you also uh, wrote Emancipation After Hegel. You're a podcaster, a YouTube star, a professor. Uh, you sport a mean cap and a regular <laughs> guest uh, on the Diet Soap podcast. So, Todd McGowan, welcome back. We were before I pressed record. We were talking about Shijek and Pinkard and that conversation hardly call it really a debate um, about Hegel and uh, Kant and, and uh, the different interpretations of Hegel. Um, and what I was asking you is if you um, could present the differences between uh, some interpretations like Pippin's and Pinkard's interpretation of Hegel and Zizek's in a way that maybe Zizek was reluctant to, because he's such a affable He's a nice guy, right? Guy. Right. He's a nice guy. Uh, I, I hope I'm a nice guy too, but <laughs> but yeah, Pinkard's not here, so I could I could do that. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. So so uh, Slavoj uh, once attributed he attributed he took this joke, and it's the only time he's ever uh, taken a joke from me and attributed it to me. And this is actually a joke I didn't come up with, but he goes, the joke goes like this: I tried to read Hegel, but I found out that I can't. Right. And so <laughs> his point was in telling the joke was that this is really what characterizes what we could call the Pittsburgh reading of the Pittsburgh Hegelian school. And Pinkard is, I don't know, he said more loosely aligned with that. It's it's Robert Brandom, uh Robert Brandom and Robert Pippin, especially. Uh mm -hmm. but, but Pinkard, I think, is 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 associated with it. And and so the 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 joke gets at this idea that it's a Kantianization of Hegel. It's seeing that, so Kant tries to lay out the limits of knowledge, right? The limits of what we can know. And, and one of the ways that a certain 
line in analytic philosophy has looked at Kant was he's he's looking at the limits of what can be spoken, right? And and so what what language contains as possibility. So the the idea is that Hegel just extends that. He just sees the way in which there's certain limitations on our thought that go beyond what Kant thought they where they Kant thought they go. And so that's I think that's one of the ways that there's a difference between what what Slavoj wants to do, which is preserve an ontological uh, and not just an epistemological Hegel. So but what that means is that he thinks that Hegel has some speculation about the way things actually are, not just about what we can say about the way things actually are. And so that Kantianization of Hegel is saying, no, really what Hegel's talking about is what we can say about the way things are, that there's no speculation about the way things actually are. And it's interesting, I, we, you and I were just talking before that that when 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 Pinker talked about Slavoj's approach, he said, "Well, you know, you're really more like a Schelling than a Hegel." And so when you talk about Hegel, I just substitute in Schelling because Schelling felt free to talk about na- the natural world in a way and 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 make these claims about it in a way that Hegel didn't. Okay, so that's right. That's now, what I, no, I haven't, I, yeah. I have to confess, I have not read or studied Schelling. At all, right? yeah. I've I've read the phenomenology of spirit and some of the science of logic. I've read Kant. I, I have an undergraduate degree in philosophy, which you know I I, I feel is as good as any undergraduate degree in philosophy. Um, but um, I I don't know Schelling's work. But how is Schelling usually compared to Hegel? What what are their primary differences? Right. So, so just a little background on that. So, so what's interesting is that they were, Schelling's five years younger than Hegel, but they were roommates along with Friedrich Hölderlin at the seminary in Tübingen. So the, the three of them were together in a, in a dorm room. And I, my, I just, sorry, this is a stupid background, but my, my, a good friend of mine once said, I don't think they played a lot of video games in that dorm room. (laughs) I always, I always liked that. Uh, But so Schelling, even though he's five years younger, he becomes a star in the 1790s. So well before Hegel does a good 20 some years before Hegel does. So, uh, and, and that, that's a source of friction later, but his, basically their position was the same uh, initially, right? So Hag- uh, Schelling wrote a, his first big book was called system of transcendental idealism published in 1800. And that's so seven years before phenomenology. And it, but it does a lot of the things that the phenomenology does, except that Schelling thinks that we can know about, he, he is much more sanguine about our knowledge of nature than Hegel is. So Hegel thinks we can know about the natural world indirectly through the structure of subjectivity, right? So because we know something about subjectivity, we can deduce from that certain claims about the natural world. Schelling thinks, eventually he'll think, we can actually just make certain claims about the natural world and 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 the the way through the way that we relate to it. So that's and, and so he's much more sanguine about talking about the natural world and he's much more invested in art as 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 revelatory for uh for somewhat the nature of subjectivity. So so that those are I think are the two main differences but they're they're not really they're not huge differences i mean they're they're part of the same constellation and but but schelling so hegel's star really eclipsed schelling's when he wrote the 
basically when he got the job in Berlin in 1817 and Schelling was there. So their trajectory is kind of going opposite. So, and then Schelling was, Schelling lived in the 18, until 1850s and he was, he was, I don't know, consumed maybe is overstating it, but really jealous, I think, of Hegel's success. But anyway, so the, the I think this the, the ability of Schelling to make claims about the natural world, that's what Pinkard was, when he called Slavoj a, a what did he say? Like, you, you're like a Schelling for today, or when you're talking about Hegel, I think you're talking about Schelling. Whatever he said, I think he's he's thinking about that especially. Well, okay. Uh, there's a there's something interesting about the uh, the phrase natural world um, here, because when you talk about the natural world, it seems like you're talking about uh, scientific categories. Uh, the The, you know, whether or not we can understand biology or uh, ecological systems or, uh, you know, the way the sun uh, functions and why it burns and, you know, things like that. And then, but there's this other question of, uh, which is to what extent can we know uh, what is, to what extent can we know being? And, and so in my, from my way of thinking, this is maybe particularly eccentric or, Perhaps it's just uh, contemporary, but there's a difference between claims to be able to know the natural world scientifically and claims to be able to know being. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, and maybe that's that's probably fairly problematic to make that distinction, but um, or at least it raises issues. But I still I, I feel as though you can have this fundamental uh, problem of, of epistemology. And basically, the uh, the problem of how our understanding relates to what really actually is outside of our understanding, mm-hmm. um, and not uh, be in very skeptical about our ability to develop scientific categories of understanding that are um, realistic, that are you that are that practical, that are real- practical, or yeah. that you know, in some way or another, function. You know, like we can we can know the natural world well enough to get to the moon, but we, when we're on the moon, we can't know if those craters have any relationship to what actually is. If it does, if that right. makes sense, right? No, that makes a lot of sense. I, I think that that. That I think that distinction's pretty fair. I think that's I I I, I think that's pretty good, and, and I I think what's interesting is you could make the argument. I don't know if I totally think this, but I think you could make the argument that Schelling thinks that we can know the natural world in both ways, and Hegel just in the second way. But I don't. I'm not sure about that because Hegel has a whole full. And this is why. And which one's the second way? The the natural world as systems. Just we can just know being right. Like we can just. I oh, think, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That that. Or I sorry I reversed the ways that you put it. But but no we, no I I think I did. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah, I understand. But, but the I think that what's interesting is that uh, Hegel writes so the encyclopedia the whole second section three sections the whole second section is the philosophy of nature and he goes through you know chemism mechanism he thinks so he try he, he biology wasn't quite a thing yet but he's basically doing that so and and he, and he he's thinking about it in terms of how we like just the actual sciences that exist and what they tell us about the structure of our what's interesting though it's it's for him it's what do those 
sciences tell us about the structure of our thinking in relation to the to the world, right? So, so I think he would. I think he's more on the side of. Uh, we can say something about we can make ontological claims about being, but like, are do those correspond exactly to? Like, does our experience of the natural world correspond exactly to how the natural world is? I, I think he would be not so. You know, I don't know how what he would think of that, right? Like, I, but I think right. Schelling would think that we could make some claims about that. But I, I'm not. I'm not totally comfortable with either of those claims because I think it's. I think it's dicey. You know, it's di it's a dicey kind of situation, and that and, and, and you know that's what when Pinkard was talking to to Slavoj, one of his claims was Hegel thinks the natural world is just kind of splotchy. I think that's the word he used even. Well, I guess, but I think he does want to go through the ways he wants to think about how we think about that world. And again, see if we can draw some ontological conclusions about that. And then, I mean, you know that like one of Slavoj's big things is to think quantum mechanics with Hegel. And so his idea is that actually the sciences have moved in Hegel's direction in the 20th and 21st century through quantum mechanics. So I, I, and again, I think that would be an interesting point of difference between the two of them. Cause I don't think Terry Pinkard would say that at all. No, no, no. Uh, Terry Pinkard would just say when it comes to quantum mechanics, that's outside of my pay grade. I have no idea. Right. 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 Um, right. um uh, so, okay. Putting quantum physics uh, to, cause that sounds like if, if um, I, I'm, 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 going to say if we go with Zizek and point to quantum physics as correlating to Hegel's ontological claims yeah then we may be making a move towards Schelling right that I think that's I think that's I would just say that I think that's the thing that maybe triggered Terry Pinker to say what he did about the I assume okay. it's read less than nothing, and that's where most of that gets done in less than nothing. So, right, yeah, and less than nothing being the title of a book and not a, a slam on Pinkard's. No, uh, no, not at all. Not <laughs> at all. No, no, no. I less assume Pinkard's read less than nothing. No, 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 right, no. right, right. Uh, um, so, all right, right. So, I wrote a book called "It's a Thousand Pages" on Hegel. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know. I, I'm sure most of the audience. Yeah, is, most of um, the audience probably knows. Yeah. Um, so okay, uh, so I'm gonna back up a little bit because i want to get to look i just want to kind of oh I, I wrote a bunch of questions down and they're just okay. a way of me trying to grasp my own impasse okay here so okay. um so in my conversation with pinkard and zizek i attempted to grasp their difference in terms of ontology or being being is where hegel begins in his science of logic but as you point out in the state of capital hegel's critique of bourgeois society being is an abstract category for Hegel. It's an abstract category that leads to the concrete. That is because pure being seems immediate, it can't stand up to philosophical scrutiny. Hegel demonstrates that pure being is in fact nothing and that nothing is pure being or that it passes over into pure being while remaining distinct from it. <laughs> so it seems to me that I'm just realizing like if you aren't, steeped in this this is like maybe nonsense it's like, sounds like nonsense yeah yeah it seems to me that hegel is pointing to the process of cognition when he describes his process as well as pointing to the history of philosophical inquiry into yep. being yep. um 
But is he also pointing to a characteristic of being in itself? Is being an ontological category for Hegel or is it an epistemic quality? Okay. Yeah, that's a great question, Doug. So, right. His, so he calls, he says the science of the logic, science of logic is is a description of the mind of God prior to creation, right? Which is a crazy thing. But uh, so the idea is that logic is somehow has ontological implications. And that's the, I think that's something, there's another maybe point of, distinction between the two camps that, and, and, but I think that's really important to Hegel. So in, I, I don't think that, I think when he's talking about being in this, in the very beginning of the logic, he's not talking about how things actually are there. He's talking about how we try to theorize how things are. And he's showing that just talking about pure be So what Heidegger calls the forgetting of being, Hegel would say, yeah, well, we had to forget because it's just an abstract category. And if you just talk about pure being, you're not really talking about anything that can be distinguished from nothing in any concrete way. And from that, he gets to becoming, which you could say is the entirety of Hegel's philosophy, because it's all, it's really a philosophy of becoming. Somebody has even written, it's a philosophy of pure becoming. I think, I don't think that's totally right, but I think there's, there's something to that. So I think, I, that's what I would say. I think that when he's talking about being the beginning of the logic, it's not, that's not being in the sense that he thinks that's a way of missing what being actual, how being actually works and how being actually works is what we get throughout the path. We take the path of the logic. That's how we uncover it. When you say pure being, yeah, what you're saying is um, uh, what it is to exist without any particular distinct qualities. So it's not what it is to exist as a table or what is it is to exist as a a slime mold, but it is just what it is to exist. Existing itself. Right. And so once you, once you concretize that at all, it's no longer pure being. Right. Right. But what would pure becoming be? Uh, You know, it'd be, I guess the same thing. It'd just be what it is to move from, Right to be interpreted, to be mediated, to, to to move from being into nothing and back into being again. That that, but but I I don't know. The, the I I do agree that I, to, to try to comprehend pure becoming is tricky right. in a way that pure being isn't, and I'm not quite sure why. Well, right, but right. I think that's interesting that that's true. But mm-hmm. I think w- w- what pure becoming is is just grasping that movement from being to nothing, right? Like, so the, but once it's concretized in someone's individual life, like, you know, I had chest pains yesterday. I, I was thinking like, oh, the end is coming once that's not pure becoming. Cause it's our, it's already concretized in my life. So it's just that moment. How are you? Are you, are you I'm okay? okay. <laughs> <laughs> Stupid muscle injury. So, uh, okay. yeah. So, but I think that that, uh, that, you know, it's just as hard. I mean, that, that's Hegel's point, really, right? That we can't think pure being, we can't think pure nothing, and we can't think pure becoming because the only whenever we try to do it, we always give it some kind of concrete form, right? Like I think my own moving into nothingness, and that's not that's not pure becoming, right? So that's the problem, and 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 he draws from that that we can conclude that if we can't think that way, and this is a, I think this is where the distance between Kant and Hegel, and this is maybe a point of difference that didn't get drawn out in that discussion. 
he thinks if we can't think that way, then it can't actually be that way, right? Like that's a, that's one of his ideas that if we if we're if we're forced into a certain way of thinking or comporting ourselves, then there has to be some force of the things themselves that are pushing us in that direction. That's the, he, he thinks that, right? So that's that that that. Of course, we can have fantasies that don't fit into the, but we still have to be able to have those fantasies, right? Like there there can't be that. Like if 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 the world was free, it was harmonious and free of contradiction, then we wouldn't be able to think becoming. That's just for, for instance, like that's a, like if there was a such thing as pure being, then we wouldn't be able to think the question of pure being. That would be Hegel's idea, right? Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I kind of am beginning to understand, yeah. but this is always like, I, I really yeah. find this um argument to be compelling, but then it always sort of slips away from me you know, as I try to hold on to it. So I want to, I had written down, um, Something uh, well, w- when I first tried to read Hegel, like in my early in the early 2010s, not in my early 20s, but in like early 2010s, yeah. uh, I made an attempt to explain the phenomenology to my 14 year old son Ben, and I recall telling him that if we tried to imagine the universe without life in it, we would find that we weren't able to imagine anything. That if we were to think about the surface of the moon again before any life emerged anywhere, whatever images we'd come up with would include ourselves, uh, our eyes or our minds in the image. Mm-hmm. That that's that's a necessary component in any imagining, mm-hmm. and so we'd have to reject those images. Life and being, perception and essence, seem to be interconnected, even if we had to presuppose that the moon existed before human beings or any form of life emerged. Even if we had to posit a moon out there beyond us in space and time, we also had to understand ourselves in relationship to the moon in order for the moon to exist, in order for, the actual, for it to actually be. Okay. So that is life and being aren't separate. But when I said that, my son, not being uh, an idiot, said, but you're saying, you know, that unless people perceive it, it doesn't exist. Um. You know, that I worry that there's a solipsistic turn here. Yeah, so, right, right. Yeah. And right. so uh, how do we avoid that if we're going to claim that the substance of the universe of being does connect to our own subjectivity? It does that our subjectivity is the fact of it tells us something about being. How do we yeah. avoid a solipsistic turn? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, because it, I think for Hegel, it works in both directions, right? So it's not just that our, so you're right to emphasize the relational nature of everything for Hegel. That, that's really important that we can't think something that's out of relation to ourselves because then it would be, we wouldn't be thinking the thing. We'd be imagining something that's out of the relation to ourselves. But I would say that, that, that there's, that, that for Hegel, it's not just that our, how we are comported shapes how we think of the thing. It's also how the thing is comported shapes how we think. So, and shapes the structure of our being or our lives. So it's, it's not just one thing or the other. That's why that, I think that really important line that he repeats, I think six times in some form or the other in the preface of phenomenology, substance, substance is subject, right? Like it means 
okay, it means that my subjectivity is involved with any apprehension of the way things are, but vice versa, it means that the subject, the, the thing that seems substantial and out there and just solid is also affecting me. And it's also, it's also divided and contradictory and that's shaping me. And so you can't just as, just as, you know, the, 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 how the moon appears is related to us and our subjectivity. So is our subjectivity a result of certain effects of space and all that. So, so I think it, I think for Hegel, it goes both directions. And I think that's what saves it from being, I think it's actually, it's interesting. The word solipsism, I think it's totally anti-solipsistic philosophy. Like I think yeah. because it, it's a total well, relational philosophy. I read Barclay, Bishop George Barclay before yeah. I read Hegel. Right. So, yeah. And so when, when I, when he claims that being pure being is indistinguishable from nothing. Yeah. I read in Barclay. I read yeah. in, okay. Uh, when you try to imagine a being or matter, um, you're, you're only dealing with an abstraction, which is a, a linguistic category of understanding, but which doesn't, could not be in itself. It has no qualities in itself. Therefore, it is nothing. It doesn't exist. Therefore, you know, you're making a mistake. And, uh, you know, the, when a tree falls in, in the quad, God hears it. But otherwise, it wouldn't make a sound. Right, right. right that's right. an interesting thing. You're, you're a good Barclay reader because most people that cite Barclay, they're not like, they're like, if a tree falls in the quad and nobody's there, nobody hears it. But, of course, for Barclay, God hears <laughs> it. That's how, that's how yeah. Right, right. Yeah, you know, it's Doug, it's so fascinating you would say that because I read, so I was in graduate school, and I too read Barclay, I think Principles of Human Knowledge or something, uh, prior to reading Hegel and right before. And then I read Hegel and I was reading it uh, in an independent study with a friend of mine, who, uh, I mean, a prime professor who became a friend. And I said, well, isn't this just, here's what I said. I said, isn't this bar just Barclay socialized? You know, like Barclay seen, as, but it's social. And he's like, you, no, you've misunderstood it totally. <laughs> so, so it's interesting that I had that same reaction when I first read, because I think there is a temptation to think that he he emphasizes subjectivity so much. You think, oh, this is just, he just means all there is, is what we're perceiving, right? But I, I think that that's, I think it's, you have to think it also the other way around for him or else you're, you miss Right. It. Well, okay. But uh, all right. So well, let me just the here's let me tell you what my problem with Barclay yeah. was with the, right. what yeah. saved me from becoming a solipsist. Yeah. Um, other than the fact that it was a terrible approach to life, especially if you wanted to date. But it, but um, uh, here's what saved me. Um, uh, Barclay needed God, right, right, in order for his system to cohere. You couldn't the the realm of perception alone did lead to solipsism and then it led to difficulties that were uh, uh, you couldn't resolve like does a, a a sailboat actually get smaller when you walk away from it right um problems of perception like that that the the the, 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 the there are all sorts of assumptions that we made about the physical world that weren't actually immediate to our perception right. um and matter was one of them um and god 
for Barclay was one of them too. It was a background, a necessary background conception right. that set up uh, a coherent understanding of the world, um, set up human perceptions, say. Right. So, so if you then apply Barclay's own critique of matter to God, you'll find God is nothing too, because God is infinite and finite and, you know, uh, everything and nothing, you know, it's just, it's without any qualities can't be limited. It's all the same kind of problem. Yeah. So God disappears into nothing just as easily as matter does for, for Barclay. If you take, you know, Barclay can't really stand on God. Right. Barclay wouldn't say that. No, no. But it just, if you're, if you're, Think if, it right. if you think it through, it yeah. doesn't, doesn't make yeah. sense. Um, yeah. So, all right. So then you're left with solipsism, which also can't cohere. Right. Right. Um, and then, so when I read Hegel, I say, okay, Hegel is saying that ontologically there's an, there's a contradiction or incoherence in, in the world. It's not right. just in us. It's uh, this tendency that we see in philosophy. Um, it's necessary. The um, split between subject and object isn't just in the subject, but it's in both right. the object and the subject. But right. and I can say that, and that sounds all neat and everything. But there's still, I feel like, a missing piece. Like there's okay. a so. Um, yeah, what I really feel like where I end up is going, yeah, nothing makes sense. It, it Nothing will go here. Uh, it's all contradictory. And that's just life. Get used to it. Move on. Um, which could could push you into a kind of anti-philosophical perspective, right? I guess. But, but don't you think that, I mean, Hegel's point is actually that it takes a lot to see contradiction, right? Like it takes, it's not just. I mean, look how difficult it is for Kant. Like it, he has to work through the antinomies. Like that takes a lot of arguing and a lot of structure of thought. Like, I don't think, I think for Hegel, like just throwing up your hands and say, oh yeah, that everything is contradictory is, is like, no. Like I think the commonsensical attitude is the Anne Randian attitude, the Aristotelian attitude that A equals A, right? That That it all just, everything is, self-identical. And I think you're only able to throw up your hands in that cynical way. I think that's what you're suggesting, kind of cynicism. Yeah. Uh, you're only able to throw up your hands like that if you accept that A equals A, that you you, you accept that the world is non-contradictory because you're like, the world's not contradictory. I can't do anything about it. But if you think the world is contradictory, then the onus is on you to do something about, about the way things are, right? Because nothing is... I mean, I think in a way, this is, this is one idea from Hegel that Marx really takes over, right? That look, capitalism is contradictory, so we can do something about it, right? Like it's not Adam Smith is wrong. It's not David Ricardo is wrong. There's nothing natural about the way these relations are going along. So so that means we can do something about it. I think that's absolutely Hegel's point. That that it's that contradiction is is it, it impels us to act. It's not a it's not like, oh, now I can just sit back because just sitting back is already accepting that th you think things are identical, even if you're telling yourself that you think they're contradictory, right? Like you've, you're, you, and I think this is a really important idea for Hegel. This, this happens this throughout phenomenology, throughout logic. It's always like you tell, you might be telling yourself one thing, but if we, like you just did with Barclay, right? If we trace out the implications of your position, 
you're actually you actually think something far different than what you are telling yourself. Yeah, right. So right. That happens all right. the time. Yeah. And okay, so this this uh, well, I'll confess uh, that before, right before I talked to you, I I, I had a um, remote therapy session, and um, that's one of the things that you try to as a philosopher. You want to think everything through, right? But right. In, in therapy, you've got to have this guy who's forcing you to, right. to think right. it through. Otherwise, you'll just, you know, oh, well, God exists in the quad. Let's put it over there. So uh, how does um, Hegel relate to, like, psychoanalysis and psych psychological therapy and all of that kind of uh, thing, the Lacan, um, in, in, in that way? does Is he, do you think that we have a, uh, a block to understanding Hegel the way we might have a block to uh, understanding our own symptoms. Wow. That's a good question. Uh, first of all, let me just say that in the circles I hang out with, one doesn't confess one's therapy. One brags about it. So, Far different circles. It's because, right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, and if you're not in therapy, that's a, that's what you have to confess. Like, sorry, I'm not. I, you know. I, yeah, yeah. I, I flunked out of therapy. I, I yeah. quit on it. I, you know, I'm a quitter. Yeah. So, so here's that's a yeah. It's a fascinating thing. I've never thought about it in those terms, and I think that there's something really fecund about that. That that maybe it is true that. And it, it has to be true for Hegel himself, right? Like he's a, he's not he's not someone like Jacques Lacan you just mentioned. Lacan tries to write badly and tries to be indecipherable. Hegel thought he was doing a good job, which just shows how self deceived he was. Um, but I I want I think it might be this like there there might be a kind of psychic barrier to the path that Hegel was trying to go down, and Hegel himself encountered it. That seems to, that makes a lot of sense to me. I I hadn't. I've never heard. What would it? What what would it? What would it be? Do you think that well, that we well, want to avoid think, thinking through? Look, so I sorry, I just talked that's right. Okay. Over that's all right. That's great. That means that we're having a good, exciting conversation. Okay, yeah, yeah. Except it's uh, it's not good for people trying to listen. Uh, but I think that I think that what 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 it is 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 that that the way he anticipates the unconscious, right? Like Freud's point about unconscious is contradictory ideas can exist in the unconscious without offsetting each other, right? Like they, they, they just, they're just there side by side They're The unconscious is contradictory. And I've always, I've always thought that not always, I mean, 10 years, whatever that Hegel anticipates psychoanalysis because of his understanding of the way subjectivity runs aground on contradiction all the time. Right. So that I think is a psychoanalytic idea. But I, I, I don't, I had always assumed, and I, I still sort of think this, that, that he doesn't, he doesn't, that is no one before Freud really theorizes the unconscious in the way that Freud and psychoanalysis do. And I don't think Hegel does, but I think he's moving in that direction, which is, I think, what the, what the barrier is to him, himself being able to articulate his own thinking satisfactorily. Yeah. Okay. So, um, now I want to ask you about the, the the difference between everyday understanding of the unconscious and like a Freudian or Lacanian understanding. Um, because uh, the way most people I think understand the unconscious is that you have maybe a lizard brain 
or right. some early primitive parts right. of your brain which aren't part of the prefrontal cortex and therefore are directing you to breathe and they're directing you to, you know, produce saliva and, you know, making you horny sometimes. And then, you know, you have the prefrontal cortex, which is trying to process the unconscious, right? right. That's not what you mean when you talk about unconscious. No, no, no. Good. Yes. Very good. That's not it. No. So, so Freud, interestingly, I think starts out believing that the unconscious is the objects that we desire because they are, they're so socially unacceptable, right? So he starts out thinking, well, like what's unconscious is the way that I desire, let's just, I'm just going to choose the most banal Freudian example. Like I have the Oedipal desire for my mother and I can't, I can't bring that into consciousness. It, it's too, it's too mm. painful. And so it's repressed, right? Like that just, I, and I think that's his idea up until he writes Beyond the Pleasure Principle in 1920. And then I think his idea is much more interesting. Then he says, the unconscious is this other place that operates in a logic that defies consciousness, right? So it, so it, in the unconscious, we seek out our own, it's, the unconscious has basically a masochistic structure to it. We seek out our own destruction. Consciously, we cannot do that. We, we can't think in those terms. It's like, you know, consciously we're all like Pascal who says everyone wants to be happy, even the person that kills himself. He just imagines that's happiness, right? Mm -hmm. But I think Freud, so there you see that, and that's the logic of consciousness. And for Freud, the unconscious is the opposite. It's like you're trying to just undermine yourself in whatever way that you can. And so you go into therapy to realize all the ways in which you're trying to undermine yourself, right? And try to find a way not to get out of that, but to find a way to make that compatible with staying alive and doing okay. Right. So that's right. Uh, so um, those two definitions of uh, what the unconscious is Freudian, you know, the, the, the objects of desires, the, the things that we want because they're unacceptable. Yeah. Like Norman Bates love for his mother, right. Which is unconscious and disassociated. Right. And this uh, unconscious being the realm of self-destruction, the, the realm of self-undermining uh, thought, those aren't really at odds with each other, right? The well, one I think they kind of are, but I think you could, I, I guess you could say that they're not. And Freud himself- well, maybe if, if you think that the reason why the objects of desire are desirable because they're socially unacceptable, not, right. not, not, not on their own. It wasn't it that Norman's mother was so hot, right? <laughs> but it was the fact that she was the taboo right? Yeah. Um, that drove him in an act that was self-undermining uh, to, to dress up like his mother. And, and yeah, that's pretty good, Doug. I, I, I've, I've, I, that undermines me a little bit because I like to have them totally opposed because I'm, I'm not a believer in the Oedipus complex at all. And no. so probably because my mother is so, so wait, hot because so your mom's so hot. You don't believe in the so hot. Yeah, 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 <laughs> hot, but she just weighed heavily on me psychically. Um, but I think that I, I do think that that makes a little bit of sense to me that you could, because the choosing the unacceptable object is a way of self undermining, right? Like that does. So they do, they do kind of fit together. I hadn't thought of that. That's, that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, Right. It, 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 yeah, it's, it's, it's saying 
what is taboo in and of itself is what is desirable, which is like, you know, like if you tell your kids, uh, you know, don't do drugs, they're up there, they'll destroy you. You know, those drugs become more desirable right, uh, right. because of that. Right. So it's an interesting question. Is it, are they desirable because you have interdicted them or are they desirable because they will destroy you? Right. Like, I think that's the, that's the difference between those two forms of the unconscious. Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you have to, if those, right. It could be that you just want to defy. Right. Right. There's a desire, an aggressive desire to defy right. the parental or uh, patriarchal authority. Right. Or it could be that, I mean, you believe dad and therefore now these things are more desirable. Right. 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 Yeah. Um, hmm. Yeah. So I, I think there's a difference still. Like the, the one way you could think about it is there's a movement away from the object in Freud, right? Like he, he ceases to think the object means that much. And I, I, I kind of like that. I think that that's right. Right. Um, yeah. And, and you like that n not only because you're trying to escape the Oedipal complex. No, not just because of that. Although that's, <laughs> <part of it. laughs> right. you know, there's a great joke. This guy, this guy comes into a psycho, he goes to see a psychoanalyst and he goes, um, the, the, he, like the, the, the analyst says to him, he goes, I don't worry. I'm not one of those psychoanalysts who's focused on the Oedipal complex. And the guy goes, well, who do I see if I want to sleep with my mother? So, <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's my situation. <laughs> that's a great joke. Um, uh, so yeah. Okay. I'm going to now, uh, on that note, um, go back to Hegel uh, that we've gotten into, uh, uncomfortable territory no uh, uh the the uh, the thing about this is um okay let's see if i can actually segue into it rather than okay, just yeah good cut to it um so this desire to or the it's not a desire but the propensity to be self-undermining is the the what sets up um uh the unconscious right and in and in hegel this self-undermining uh, quality is not merely a category of human understanding. It's not just a, a part of our uh, psyche, but there's a quality of self-undermining, uh, a propensity to self-undermine in the physical world itself, in matter, in being. Right. Um, right. That's uh, right. And so that's why, that's why I said, I think Hegel anticipates the unconscious, right? Because, he sees the way that both, and I like the, what you said. So both every position that we take ends up undermining itself, like you did with Barclay, and matter itself does it. Right, the physical world itself is constantly doing it. Right, so it's not just like Hegel used the example of, you know, we think an apple is this solid thing, but you can take a bite out of it. Right, so so it. An app, I mean, I, I think there's a way you could say all of Hegel's thought is reducible to this, that this is not true. It's exaggeration, but that in order to be eaten, an apple must be biteable, right? Like, and, and he wants to, he all, I think we don't like to think that way. Like we like to think, no, there are people that are aggressive actors doing a certain thing. And that's, and they're the ones, they're the agents in the world and, and other people, people who have things done to them or the things that have things done to them, they're the passive recipients of that action. And Hegel's point is, okay, it's not a moral point. 
Like he's not saying like those people, everyone's equal morally. He's just saying in order for something to happen to something or someone, it has to be able to, they have to be, allow it to happen to them. Right. So, but it's not a, it's not a question of judging them or making a moral claim about anything like that. It's just saying, it's just a, it's just a claim about the way relation is always functioning. Right. Right. Yeah. That's all. And I think it's a really, I mean, I think it's a really important point. Like there, 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 things must be able to happen or they wouldn't, it sounds dumb to say, or they wouldn't happen. Right. Right. Well, Right. Uh, the, I don't know. Forgive me for this, but last night I watched um, what we do in the shadows. So everything just refers to like, in my mind, I have to think through pop culture. It's like yeah. all I have. Um, no, that's good. Uh, so in one of the episodes, the um, vampire hunter character is challenged to a fight with another human against another human being, just a regular person. And I thought to myself, I know that that character cannot be defeated by a vampire. He's not the kind of character that can be defeated by a vampire. So there's no worries there, but uh, could another human being defeat him? Is he, does he, I don't know. And so there was real tension for the first time in like a whole season, whether or not he was going to win these fights. But of course it turned out, no, he can't be defeated by him. (laughs) But um, so, yeah, uh, it's in a, in a sense, you know, it does matter what kind of being you are. As to whether or not, you know, as to what's going to happen to you or what what kind of action or will can be forced upon you. like Right. I mean, that's just how we, Hegel thinks, that's how we have to think about the world because that's the way everything is, it comes back to what you said in the beginning about relation, right? Like everything Mm -hmm. is in relation. So to to just choose, we can even take a dicey example today, right? Like Ukraine had to be invadable by Russia in order for that to happen. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be collectively outraged or everything, whatever, Mm -hmm. but it had to. And the same thing with Taiwan right now, Taiwan has to be invadable by China or it couldn't happen. Right. So, you know, like it, like right now the United States is not invadable by Belgium. Right. It's just not, it's not possible. So that, that, so that's a, that's part of what it means to be the United States and Belgium or Taiwan and China, right? Like that's all, that's, that's part of what that thing is for Hegel. So it's not, but again, it's not a moral or political judgment in any way. It's just saying it's, it's, it's an ontological judgment actually. Right. Well, listen, but now that we're talking about politics, yeah, I'm going to like, I'm going to, we're going to keep recording, but I'm going to end. This is at 44, 45 minutes. This part is over and we'll go for a little bit longer. And for the patrons only, I want to talk to you about political things and maybe they'll relate. uh, Hopefully we'll find a way to relate them to what we've come to in our philosophical conversation, but who knows? 